Thank you. Welcome. I would like to begin by saying it is a privilege and an honour to be asked to speak. When I was first asked, I thought I should give it due consideration before saying yes, so I did not answer the email straight away, but instead danced around the room for five minutes <laughs> and then answered. Well, what a week. We have heard from Jane on Monday, who took us through the mind of the writer of Ecclesiastes. And then from Michael, who spoke of the kindness he has received in his life. And I would like to offer practical and accessible advice to live a life worth dying for. I will be drawing from my work as a therapist and my own life experiences, and I hope you will find it useful. So how do we live knowing we will die? Well, according to the laws of aerodynamics, a bee should not be able to fly. But fortunately, no one has told the bees this, <laughs> and they fly anyway. Who has told you that you can't fly? Who has told you that you can't do something that gives you joy because it's not for you? Are you living a life that has meaning? Or are you being driven by your fear? Your fear of failure or of disappointing others? Are we distracted from our true vocations by thoughts that get in the way? Thoughts about our own abilities? About what people will think of us? About what it might mean to stumble and fall? What will people say? What if they laugh? Or worse, what if they don't laugh? Thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> we often get caught up in activities that distract us from what matters. Or maybe it's the feelings that get in the way. We are frightened of doing it, or we are waiting to feel more confident before we do it. Maybe we are waiting for something to happen before we do what is important to us. I'll do that when I retire, when my parents die, when I win the lottery, when I have more time. We do not know what will happen after we die. There have been no customer reviews. So how do we live this life, the one we're living now, some would say it is the knowledge that we are going to die that inspires us and makes us get on with things. A bit like a deadline. <laughs> You're ahead of me. <laughs> a deadline. I was 50 last year and someone said something quite sobering to me. If your life is a week, then 50 is like Friday evening. <laughs> well, at least I have a weekend to enjoy. <laughs> How, do we how then do we live a life that has meaning? What does our soul tell us? What makes our heart sing? In the next two hours, just kidding. <laughs> Had you worried though? In the next hour, I'm going to be talking to you about the scientific research, poetry, books, and my own life experiences and what they have taught me about how to live a meaningful life 
and how to overcome the psychological barriers that get in the way of doing that. We light this candle to celebrate the light within us. We light this candle to remember its briefness. The short life when our souls are in this body. We light this candle to remember the other lights burning bright all around the world. And our Mark is going to lead us in this little light of mine. So I'm going to shout out the changes, so I'm going to really take it to church. <laughs> Are we going to stand? Should we stand? Yeah.
later, so... <laughs> so now we have a children's story. What I wrote. I'm going to have a bit of help here. A bit shy. You're not really shy, are you? <laughs> no, you're just pretending. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do this to everyone. There's a story for everyone. Sam woke up one morning very excited. He had had a dream. And in this dream, he was doing what he had always wanted to do. <laughs> Sam felt like it was a message from God. Even though he wasn't sure if he believed in God. He only believed in God on a Friday, and today was a Monday. He decided, though, that from that day forward, he would do what he had always meant to do. So he wrote a list, talk to his friend at church and tell him the good news that he had found something amazing that he wanted to do. Two, find someone who had already done it and ask them how they did it. Three. Stop doing the things that take up all his time that he does not enjoy and are not important. So he does not enjoy tidying, but it's still important. He was just about to do the first thing on the list when he heard a voice. <coughs> Squawk. It was his parrot, Libby. And he said this. Oh, paint. Oh, I won't. Shh, I'm trying to talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, painting, hmm? really? What if your paintings are no good? You will never be any good at it. It's better not to start. You would be better to use the money you might spend on paint and give it to charity. Oh, do you really think so? said Sam. Yes, said the parrot. Remember that teacher you had and he said you were no good at drawing? Well, you should probably not tell your friend at church either. He might laugh. So Sam spent the day doing what he had always done, and then he went to bed. <laughs> that night he had another dream. You're on the mic. <laughs> that night he had another dream. He was running around his old house from when he was a little boy, and he couldn't find the way out. Then he found a door, and it was locked, and outside through the window he could see all the paintings he had ever painted, but he could not get to them. And then he saw them float up into the sky and he, until he couldn't see them. The next day, he rang up his friend from church and he said, I've something to tell you. I've always wanted to do this thing and I keep dreaming about it, but my parrot keeps telling me not to. It even tells me not to tell you that, that I want to do it. Oh goodness, Sam. What do you want to do? You've got to be worried now. Well, don't laugh, but I want to start painting. I mean, lots, a lot, like every day. I mean, like an artist, I guess. Oh, Sam, why would I laugh at that? It's wonderful. You shouldn't take any notice of your parrot. <laughs> He's just trying to be helpful. Parrots should not be taken too seriously. <laughs> They're dreadful warriors. 
He's just trying to make sure you're safe. <laughs> so I don't have to listen to him. Oh, God, no, not at all. I mean, they do sometimes say something useful. Like the other day, mine said, have you got your key with you? And I hadn't. Um, so that was useful. And then on Tuesday, he said, don't ask that lady if she is pregnant. She might have just put weight on. <laughs> He just tries to put me off my stride. Well, shall I just get rid of him? You know, take him back to Parrots R Us. Oh no, said his friend. You can't do that. He's part of the family now. Imagine if we just got rid of family members that were annoying. No, no, you just have to tell him, thank you for the warning, and then carry on with what you're doing before we try to put you off. So the next day, he went out and bought some brushes and started painting. The, the parrot still kept squawking and telling him to give up and not show anyone and definitely not have an exhibition. But Sam painted anyway. Sam had an exhibition and Libby went along too. And Libby was very happy because at the centre of the exhibition, there was a big, big painting and it was of a parrot. <laughs> and for once, Libby was squawkless. <laughs> so he's just going to sit down there because he might be helping us a bit later <laughs> now before the children go I just want to ask you something have you got a favourite do you like ice cream? yeah, everybody, mostly has anyone got a favourite ice cream? yeah, what's your favourite one? yeah what? She's got a shy. Have a think. Which yours? Vanilla. 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 Two vanillas. Any others? Have you decided now? Candy Crush. Candy Crush. I thought that was a bad candy. No. It's a ice cream. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you for that. That's really helpful. We're going to use that later in, in my talk. So um, you're now going to go. But as they, as they lead out... Um, I'd like us just to think about what were the things as a child that we enjoyed doing and what were the things that inspired us before being grown up kind of got a bit in the way and what games did we like to play? Thank you. There's she putting in as well. <laughs> Do you want Libby to help? He's quite good with shoes. <coughs> I'm going to start with a, a reading you might be familiar with from Rumi. And I've chosen it because I think it depicts well how we might relate to our inner experiences. This being human is a guest house. Every morning is a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Treat each guest honourably. The dark thought, the shame, 
the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So, how long have we got? Well, they've taken the clock down, so who knows? Last week I was panicking about my talk. Obviously I'd written it completely already. But... <laughs> and I rang a friend from su for support. You'll be fine, she said. What day are you doing? Thursday. Oh, Thursday. Mm. <laughs> what, um, before Bill Darlison? Oh no, after Bill. After Bill? <laughs> for those of you who don't know, he's kind of a bit of a guru. You're dead in the water, she said. <laughs> great expression for a talk about death <laughs> but since then my talk has moved from Thursday to Wednesday and then back to Thursday and now it's neither before or after Bill which just goes to show how things do not always turn out how we plan but they turn out all the same then two weeks ago I practiced in front of two people one of them looked out of the window the whole time and said nothing and the other one said well it needs to pick up a bit I then rang my partner Saint and I said, look, I want to write like, like it's the talk of my life. I want to inspire people like I've been inspired. The advice they give to TED Talkers is, if there was one thing you wanted the world to know before you die, what would it be? Now say that. Well, that's the perfect advice for a talk about death, surely. <laughs> well, I woke up early the next day and started rewriting. So hopefully this is the talk you're going to hear, not the one that needs to pick up a bit. So why am I telling you this? Because the way I wrote this talk is the way I'm trying to live my life. So I'm writing this talk from the heart, without listening to the parrot that's a terrible warrior and tells you it should be a certain way. What would I say if there was no should or oughts? One of my patients said to me, be careful of hardening of the arteries." <laughs> so this is the thing I want to tell you before I die. Two things. How to work out what, a, what is a life that has value to us. And secondly, how to overcome the barriers to living that life. When I was in my 30s, I had an experience that made me realise I need to focus on what is important. I thought to myself, if I only had six months to live, what would I wish I had done? And the answer was quite clear. I would wish I'd been an artist. I decided to start painting and made several paintings and had an exhibition. Asking ourselves what we would wish we had done can be one way of working out what direction we should take. It's not meant to make us feel regret, if only I'd been an artist, but rather to stop us from accumulating more regrets. In other words, let's start being an artist now. And for artist, insert engineer, minister, closer to people, or whatever is the thing you want to do. When my dad was on his deathbed, I asked him about his regrets, and he said to me he wished he had bought a caravan with bigger guttering. <laughs> I reckon that, that if, was your, if that was your only regret, then it wasn't bad going. So asking ourselves, 
What do we want to have done by the time we die can be a useful technique for helping us clarify our life directions. For a long time, my life did not have meaning. I basically earned money and then I spent money. And there was never enough money. So I worked harder and there was still not enough money. And then I got ill, really ill. And I ended up in hospital very unwell. And this was a, a life-changing experience. And what happened was one night I was lying in bed and I had my eyes shut and I heard a choir and the choir got louder and I opened my eyes and I saw it coming towards me and it was the, the, the music was kind of ethereal and there was a kind of strange light and then a man came from the front of the choir and he moved forward and he stretched out his hand and he said, Helen, and he gave me something. And it was a shopping voucher <laughs> from Gerald's, which, of those of you who know Norwich, is very specific to Norwich. And then I realised I wasn't dying. <laughs> but... <laughs> it, was, it wasn't that that changed my life. <laughs> But I then had news. I had very serious news, so you've got to stop laughing now. <laughs> um, I had news that I had multiple sclerosis. And I, it was a real wake-up call. And I didn't know how long I would have left before I became disabled. And it urged me on to find meaning. I later received a treatment that stopped the progression of the illness. And this was good news, obviously. But then I felt that I had to push myself to do something amazing, that I'd been kind of let off, that I'd been given extra time. The thought was, you've been saved from disability and you have no children, so now you have to do something outstanding with your life. And I think that striving, however, to do something outstanding felt like a lot of pressure. And although not disabled by my MS, I still had the limitations of the illness. And I tended to rather go at things with full force and then I'd get worn out, and then I'd get depressed and anxious. A strange thing happened. When I first got MS, I went blind, and I truly believed that God was striking me down for painting naked women. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a Unitarian at that point. <laughs> Later on, though, I thought perhaps it was more likely my body was saying to me, look, you need to slow up, and if you're not going to slow up, I'm going to make you go blind in one eye, and then you'll slow up. Then I discovered something six years ago that changed the way I approach life. And I use it in my job as a therapist, and I use it in my own life. Six years ago, a man walked into my life and changed it forever. Stay with me. <laughs> I had started a new job, and on my first day, a tall, beautiful man, who was somehow both masculine and feminine, stood before me, he was particularly striking because he had a barely healed scar across his head from, I found out later, brain surgery for a tumour. <clears throat> he was a clinical psychologist called Ross and he taught me about something called ACT. ACT is a form of therapy that teaches us to live our life to the full alongside the things that hold us back, whether it be physical disability, pain, emotional problems or addiction. And ACT stands for 
acceptance and commitment therapy. ACT has been used in clinical trials to help people with numerous problems from psychosis to smoking cessation, from chronic pain to personality disorder. But it's also a great approach to life, even if you do not have a major illness. Why? Well, because life is difficult. It throws us curveballs when things seem to be going well. Just when it looks like things are settled, it suddenly all changes and new challenges come along. I was thinking about this week and about how much planning had gone into this week, but there are some things you can't plan for. <laughs> yeah? And this approach to life is very simple. It's about living a life that has meaning, despite the pain and difficulty that we encounter. It's about living a life that has meaning, despite the pain and difficulty that we encounter. The simplest explanation of ACT is that it is Buddhism without any religious content, so the religious content has been removed. And if you know anything about Buddhism, you'll know that it talks a lot about suffering. And I used to think, well, I don't want that religion. I mean, we've got Christianity for suffering. <laughs> or is it guilt and then suffering, something like that. But with ACT, as in Buddhism, we ask, why is it hard to be happy? Why is life so difficult? Why do, humans, why do humans suffer so much? Well, one of the reasons for suffering is that in the Western world, there's the idea that we should be happy. We are constantly fed images of happy people. To be fair, they are mostly happy, made happy by the car, mobile phone, or whatever else they've bought. But they're happy and smiling all the same. So when pain comes along, we tend to add to it with the idea that we shouldn't be that way. So for example, we wake up feeling tired and sad. We're lying in bed feeling miserable. We lie there wondering why we're sad. Then we tell ourselves we shouldn't be sad because there are other people who have much more things to be sad about. <coughs> then we feel guilty about being sad. You shouldn't be sad. You've got a good life, we tell ourselves. Then we wonder how long the sadness will last for. Then we feel anxious about feeling sad. What if it doesn't go away? What if I feel sad all day or all week or all year? So then we might imagine ourselves being sad for a long time. I must be depressed, we tell ourselves. Or I'm a depressed person. Or I'm a depressive. Or we think about all the re reasons why we are sad. Maybe we decide that it's someone else's fault. Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? Then we feel angry about feeling sad. I wouldn't be sad if that person hadn't made me sad by doing that thing or saying that thing. I think I'll try and get them back. So now we're plotting revenge. <laughs> or maybe we think about what is making us miserable and we decide it's not someone else's fault, it's our own fault. So then we're angry with ourselves. And all this before we've got up. <laughs> We might decide not to get up because the day is kind of ruined. Um, so we stay in bed and we wallow. And then we tell ourselves we're lazy and good for nothing. So now we feel shame and guilt. And it's still only nine o'clock. But we don't need to do any of these other things on top of the initial feeling. The acceptance is about accepting the initial feeling, the feeling of being tired and sad. This does not make, it's not the same as liking it, of course, or agreeing with it. 
We wake up, we feel tired and sad, and then we get on with the day. We get on with what is important. We may decide that we are tired and we need to do less that day and rest more, but we do this without beating ourselves up about not being 100%, not getting enough done. So if we think back to the Rumi poem, this is what he's getting at. Instead of pushing away our difficult experiences, we welcome them in laughing. When we feel anxiety or have a dark thought, we just note it and then we move on without trying to push it away. Of course, we may have other things that restrict us on a given day. Disability, pain, something outside of us that we can't influence, such as our working hours or the weather. It could be memories of the past that get in the way. We may not like what has happened in the past or agree with it, but we cannot change it. I was adopted as a baby and I often used to wish that I had been kept and brought up by my birth parents. But now I accept that everything that has passed has passed and has made me what and who I am today. So the acceptance is all about accepting what we cannot change. ACT uses the serenity prayer. The serenity prayer is central to ACT. I'm just going to show it to you on here. So that's the acceptance of the treatment therapy, and then this is the serenity prayer. I've also got some versions of it here, so if anybody wants one to take away, they can have them. It sometimes has the word God. I'm going to say God at the beginning this time. So, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. So the acceptance and commitment relate to the first two lines of the prayer, and today we'll be talking about acceptance of difficulties, in, partic in particular the thoughts and feelings that come along. And in the second bit, we're going to talk about how we commit to a life that has meaning and value, which is the commitment or courage to change the things I can. So just to explain... Acceptance is this bit. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And then commitment relates to this bit. As a psychological therapist and Unitarian, I love the serenity prayer. It was written by the American theologian, Reinhold Neighbor, and used in sermons in the 1930s. It was then nicked by Alcoholics Anonymous, but before that, philosophers wrote some similar things. The Greek philosopher Epictetus wrote, make the best use of what is in your power and take the rest as it happens. Some things are up to us and some things are not up to us. I love that, isn't it great? Some things are up to us and some things are not up to us. Does that feel a bit like this week? <laughs> There is also records of, a, records of a Buddhist monk having a version. And I love that the saying has gone from philosophy to Buddhism to self-help to Christianity to psychology. And I love the fact that in my work, the treatment for mental illness keeps coming up with all these things that religions have been doing for thousands of years. <laughs> Meditate, help other people, forgive others, be compassionate to others and yourself. Live a life that has meaning. I just find it hilarious. <laughs> And they've also found research shows that people who have a face generally are mentally healthier, but they don't know why that is. 
<laughs> so, um, when I first got asked to do this talk, which was many months ago, I asked Saint if she'd write me a poem. So last night she wrote me a poem. <laughs> Which she's now going to read. <laughs> Have you got the bits of paper? Yeah, it's over the end. Oh, that. Right. <laughs> little, little sip. I'm going to sit here. <clears throat> you so this is based on a true experience. Strange but true. Footfalls crunch, the avenue of death, Teotihuacan, pyramid of the sun, warming my back. Stone of my body rests in my palm, my life of flesh held in stone. Hard and warm, last breath lingers upon my fingers. Angel of death, wingless in the distance. Avenida de los Muertos, drenched with enough tears to fill a thousand bucket lists untipped and infinite oceans of regret. I am a sinner undeserving. The gospel tells me so. The angel of death is not easily impressed with laments of regret. She kindly turns me back to make the unkind trek yet again. Footfalls crunch. Avenida de los Muertos. I curse, I beg, I repent, stumbling and kicking the dirt, falling, crawling, curling up and refusing, then back up again, calloused and blistered, I walk until my tears of what could have been are finally spent. Snotty and wrung out, I surrender to a joyous revelation, a giddy gratitude for the show was splendid, a fine and furious ride. Again, I meet her eyes. Angel of death never fancied a scythe. She offered me her small spade and allowed me to make my pearly pass to the plaza of earth, my body's final resting place. Knees wet with dewy grass, now sleek stone polished wet, cozy in my palm. Body of the life I tendered, all regrets spent, I bury my stone. Now I lay me down to rest. I could have spent an eternity fretting over dashed dreams, slothy sins, what could have been. If I lived to 108, there would remain plenty hatchets unburied, bucket lists unticked, bottomless wells of regret for a narcissist to reflect. If I lived for only 42 years, my life would have been as good as any gold. I weep for the joy of having lived a life of vibrant adventures and boring chores. 
alone and lonely, or laughing breathless with my far-fetched beloved, her skin and smile softening by my side, blessedly entwined. Beige days, fresh laundry soaked in springtime, hair tangled, dirty dishes piled high, safety nets rescinded, best shirt finely pressed, altar kisses, a jumble of life, tumbled and terrific, a final kiss on fragile fading lips, my heart falling apart like birthday cake in the rain. Here I lay me down to rest. I surrender beyond mantras, flesh forgotten, drunken reverence, paw, paw, pawing on heaven's door. I surrender my wet socks hung by the fire, never again to be worn. Feet in the stars, head spun open, dust to dust. Here lies saint, be it through lush fields of daisy or freshly dropped cowpats. Bless her cotton socks. She danced a, fine, a damn fine life and she'd do it all over again. Amen, and so it is. Thank you, Saint. So we're going to talk a little bit now about feelings. They're hard to change. Someone asked me in the meditation session earlier this week, can you give me a mindfulness to change my feelings? And of course we want that to happen. We want to feel peaceful. If I said to you, I'll give you a million pounds if you fall in love with the next person who comes through the door, I'm sure you'd give it a go. But it depends who it is, of course. We don't always like how we feel. Some feelings are okay, aren't they? I mean, calm, happy, joyful. But the rest can take a hike. I mean, who wants to feel anxious, angry, despairing, sad? It should be noted, though, that from an evolutionary point of view, feelings are quite important. Anxiety can stop us doing something dangerous. Angry can help us take action where there is, when there is someone attacking us. Guilty can help us act in a way that helps the community, like taking a beer out of the fridge and not writing in the book. <laughs> I must do that. <laughs> Sad can alert us to the, that we have lost something. The last part of the serenity prayer, give me the wisdom to know the difference. So how do we know the difference between a thing we can change and a thing we can't? Some of you may know that I have anxiety and depression as well as MS, and I used to find it very difficult to know whether to rest or get on with things. With MS, you often need to rest, but with some kinds of depression, going to bed can lead to more inwards focus and more time to think sad thoughts. Well, I worked out the difference eventually, but it meant noticing carefully the feelings in my body to tell the difference between sadness and tiredness. One of the taglines of ACT is get out of your mind and into your life. And we can spend a lot of time thinking about things and then basically talking ourselves out of it. When writing the sermon, I had a few parrot moments. 
you're just talking about a therapeutic te technique. No one's interested in your job. They want to know about spirituality. You better make them laugh. They only come because you make them laugh. <laughs> Three, why did they ask me to do this theme talk? This is crazy. So my parrot's been busy. The trick with the parrot is to acknowledge him without buying into the story. So we don't try and shut him up or argue with him or wait for him to stop. We do not shout at him because this just takes our energy and feeds him. So for instance, when he comes up with a story about how I'm no good at writing, then I just say, okay, thanks for the warning, but I'm gonna do it anyway. So we, I've got a couple of people who volunteered to help demonstrate something. I think they're coming up, Nancy and Bernice. Um, so as they walk up, what I'm gonna to explain to you is, um, one of the things that we, um, so if you come here, I think it might be best. Thank you. If you stand roughly by, yeah, slightly, yeah, slightly behind, that's great. So what I want you to imagine is that I'm heading in my life direction, say. So I'm, I've just picked something that, um, supposing I wanted to be a minister, I don't, just, but supposing I didn't, I know it's something a lot of people think about. Um, and when we've got a kind of value direction, so the, the value that we might the value that we might have is that I want I feel I have something to offer spiritually to people and I can help them develop spiritually. And so we imagine ourselves driving a bus. And the reason why we do that is because when we have a kind of direction, we don't necessarily arrive. So supposing your your thing that you were trying to do was to be loving, you wouldn't kind of go, Oh, I did that Tuesday, tick, done. Yeah? So it would be a general life direction. Now, along the way, we might do certain actions that would be loving, but that would be the general direction. So we imagine that we maybe we're travelling east, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking to myself, I'm going to travel east. And then these guys are very kindly volunteered to be my inner thoughts, okay? So I've, I've given them free reign. Oh, <laughs> well, let's just say it can say more about them than me. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to show you three different ways of tackling the inner voice. So this is the first one. You know what? I think I, I think I might be a minister one day. You know what? I might just do like a service or something. Just to sort of. You gotta be kidding. <laughs> you do a service? Yeah. That's ridiculous. You have no training. What, what, what? background do you have? I could do that. I, I mean, where, where do you think you're coming from? You're well, going to go into the church. You go to the <laughs> You go in, you stand up at the pulpit. What? And you talk to a hundred people all staring at you. A hundred? Half of them are only there. In our dreams, half of them are only there because they've heard you doing a service and they've got this has got to be seen. How dare you? How dare you think you can do a service? How well, dare I, you? I, think, I think I could. I don't know. I've seen other people do it. it, it well, yeah, it's, I've, seen, I've been to a lot of services. It can't be that hard. How hard can it be? People, will walk, out, people will walk out, they'll laugh at you. They'll not with you, at you. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we'll walk, I know, I know. So, um, we're going to stop that demonstration. So that's, <laughs> so that's what happens. If you notice, I'm, I'm sort of doing a good argument. It's a bit like an old-fashioned form of CBT where you try and argue with your thoughts. Old-fashioned, we still do it, but it can be useful. Um, so, uh, but as you might notice that I'm not actually driving anymore. I'm just talking okay? So now I'm going to try and just get him to shut up this time. I've heard this happens with children in cars. So um, <laughs> this time I'm going to get him to shut up. So 
You know what? I think I might do a service one day. Oh, you've got to be kidding. Yeah. You have no talent for okay, service. Shh, shh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to keep driving. But you Wouldn't have you? absolutely no idea yeah. how okay. to talk no. to people shh. of every right. kind of... Okay, right. I'm not driving until you've shut up. <laughs> so just, you know, pipe. Pipe up. No, whatever. <laughs> so I don't know if you notice, I'm still not driving. Okay. So now we're going to do the third way, not Tony Blair way, but just the third way. <laughs> and, um, which is going to acknowledge them but keep driving. Okay. You know what, I think I might have a go at running a service. Oh, you've got to be kidding. Oh, yeah. This is the craziest idea you've ever had. Yeah, okay. You not Thank you for your comments. Uh, duly noted. I'm going to keep driving. <laughs> Has she got any idea what she's letting herself in for? I mean, the ridicule. She's going to make a fool of herself. <coughs> well, Thank she's you. not listening. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. We're now going to have another song. <laughs> Mark doesn't look very ready. <laughs> um, and we had this at the beginning, and we're just going to play it again. Um, so I chose this because it was, um, it was written by Paul McCartney when he, he was having a difficult time. He'd had a dream about his mother, and she was being encouraging. The words, let us be, also remind us that there are things we cannot change, and we have to just leave them alone. that has meaning. 
one of the things we might do when we use ACT is to focus on key areas of life, such as family, spirituality, leisure, or work, so on. And then you might ask yourself, how much are you living in line with these values? And wherever there's a big difference between how much you value something and how much you're living in line with it, then you would focus on that area. So uh, when you came in, you were given a target and a pencil. And we won't be filling it out right now, but I wanted you to have a pencil with a rubber on the end. I'll tell you why, because to me, this is the perfect symbol for the fact that we make mistakes. And we all make mistakes, and that's why there's a rubber on the end. With the target, you've got each colour as a different area of life. So you've got the people in your life, like family, children, partners, friends. They might not all apply to you. And you've got another area which is fun and relaxation. What do you do to unwind? Another is about study and work. And work could be paid or voluntary, caring for someone, running a household. And then there's a spirituality area. I'm just listening to, listening to Mark go, <laughs> <laughs> Spirituality and health. And this could be meditating, exercising, praying, having a treatment for an illness, eating well. So, for example, if I want to be a loving partner, but I feel that I don't behave in a loving way, then I might think, what would a loving partner say? What would they do? And then we would take actions in line with this. But let's remember as well that you do not have to feel loving to behave loving. <laughs> and I have got a little target here. So if you felt that you were, um, that you wanted to be a loving wife or loving husband or partner, and you felt that you weren't doing it very well, then you maybe put the cross on the outside. Whereas if you felt like, say, for instance, you were not working and you were quite happy with that, and that's how you wanted it to say, then you would say, this is, I've done this, this is sort of towards the middle. So that's just how you get a kind of visual diagram of how it works. And there is a website called Act Made Simple, and it's got blank ones of these, in case that one looks a bit like it's already filled in, which it kind of is. Um, <laughs> so you can have a blank one and fill it out. Um, it's called Act Made Simple, and that's this this book here. Yeah. Is it this guy, Ross? Yeah, Ross Harris. Yeah. Yeah. So, how do we know how to live our life? What are our values? How do we know what they are? So you should have some values on your seats. So if you've, they're just a very small piece of paper, it's kind of smaller than this. Excellent. So what I want to do is just for a couple of moments is just turn to the people either side of you and just see, you've all got something different written on them. So just see what the person next to you's got and what the person behind you has. Thank <laughs> you.
we do not have a set of things we're supposed to believe. And the reasons I asked the children their favourite ice cream is that I wanted us to imagine now that someone could try and tell us what our favourite ice cream is. It would be absurd, wouldn't it? In the film some of us watched the other day, the Dalai Lama said that saying which religion is correct is like saying that spicy food is correct. Some people like it and some people don't. And as a Unitarian, no one will ever tell you what to think. But there are still some values that kind of seem Unitarian. For instance, freedom, reason and tolerance. The Octagon Chapel in Norwich, where I'm a member, has its own mission statement, which is this. And it was um, done over several months by the congregation. A welcoming community of open hearts and minds who seek meaning, nourish the spirit and engage with our diverse and changing world. I think it would be hard to disagree with any of that. And in the same way, you might find with these values, it would be hard to kind of disagree with them. If you saw one that said, to be kind, you're not going to think, oh no, I'm not going to be kind. But it might not be the thing that most drives you. There might be something else that is more important. There are about 52 cards, and if you were using an ACT approach, then you'd try and get them down to about eight. And then you would divide, and you do it by dividing them into piles, and then you gradually get down to smaller and smaller numbers. So for instance, if your value was to be loving, then you might think how you would relate being loving to a different area on there. So if it was to be loving, then you might that relate that to the area of family. How would a loving family member behave? How do you demonstrate love to your mother, child, brother? So one of my values is to bring humour to the world. And this can cover many life domains. So at work, I would bring humour into my therapy sessions. So I'm going to tell you about a patient, and I've changed any identifying details. One of my patients would regularly experience feeling and seeing a creature scuttling on his arm. And he was most distressed and felt that it confirmed his idea that he was somehow unacceptable and undeserving. And the more stressed he became about his experience, the more it became vivid and stronger. So we used an approach which was to notice the sensation and to be gentle towards it, not trying to make it go away. And as we spoke more about his experience, he began to laugh about it. And by the next week, he'd named it Colin. <laughs> and whenever he noticed it, he would welcome it. And then when he welcomed it, it would move away more quickly. Another way to bring humour to my practice is to, is to do... Um, sorry, another way to bring humour is to bring... Um, is to practice my stand-up, in my stand-up routine in front of the receptionist, Rhonda. 
Um, and she's a very good audience of one, but she does get interrupted by patients. <laughs> she's laughing and then she goes, just take a seat. <laughs> I also practice in front of the psychologists. They laugh, but you, you know they're analysing you. <laughs> Jokes about sexuality. <laughs> Jokes about her mother. <laughs> I like to also bring humour to my own development. One of my best coping strategies is to imagine whatever is happening to me as a funny story. So when Saint and I moved into our new house, has a bathroom, <laughs> I, managed to, I managed to lock myself in the front garden on the first day in my pyjamas. And these were not good pyjamas. They weren't early relationship pyjamas. <laughs> We didn't have a doorbell and I did not have my phone as I was not expecting to be needing to call anyone <laughs> on my way to bringing in the milk in, from the front doorstep. But I do now ever keep the door on the latch when I collect the milk. Ross, the psychologist who I mentioned earlier, who taught me about ACT, died three years ago. It was interesting that in a way he taught me more about ACT in his death than in anything else he said. He made me reevaluate my life. He was young and died in his prime. And at that time I made an important choice and ended a relationship that was not right for me, knowing that I would feel guilty for upsetting the other person. The parrot said, do not finish with her, she will be upset and angry. She will tell everyone you're a bad person and your name will be mud. You must not make people angry. Also, she has a really good Apple computer. <laughs> Interestingly, the same parrot will tell you the opposite thing. You're wasting your life in this relationship. You're so unhappy. It only goes to show that you cannot buy into all the parrot says. This widely, the widely used textbook, which I mentioned, uses the expression, what really matters to you in your heart? Sorry. <laughs> when I practiced, I didn't have a mic. Um, what really matters to you in your heart? What do you want to be remembered for? I like to think about what I would have written on my gravestone. And this is a good question when you get distracted. So if I get distracted, I might imagine my gravestone saying, here lies Helen of Norwich. I like that bit. <laughs> here lies Helen of Norwich, who reached level three on Spider Solitaire. <laughs> now, I am proud of reaching level three on Spider Solitaire, but I don't want to be remembered for it. So it's important to get on with what you want to be remembered for. Do the thing that sends out ripples into the world. The famous existential psychologist Irving Yalom wrote a book about how he treated people with severe death anxiety. In this book, Staring into the Sun. And he, um, he treated them with death anxiety, um, helping them to live a life with meaning. And he used the words of the philosopher Nietzsche. Become who you are, and also, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. And Yalom talks about rippling, and this is the idea in your life that after you die, you continue to have an effect on other people's lives. 
And I think we all love to hear a story about how something someone has done has influenced them in a positive way. So I'm going to tell you some of the things that you have done have had an effect on me. So steal yourselves. <laughs> Last year, Claire gave a theme talk. And in it, she said how art is always important, especially when we are in difficult times. And this gave me such a boost because I had been starting to feel that I should not be concentrating on art, that my art was like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Colleen, it's hard to pick just one thing, but you are always so encouraging. And sometimes you will just say, you're doing all right. Yeah. And it gives me such reassurance. When I went to go for a shower this morning, I found a little card on my doorstep. It's actually a card of one of my own art pieces, which was really nice. <laughs> Touched on my narcissism, it's great. So, <laughs> Kate, you introduced me to Unitarians and the Octagon Chapel. Finally finding a church that does not condemn you for being gay was truly life-changing. But more than that, they don't actually care that you are gay, which is slightly humbling. <laughs> Unitarians is that everything is open for discussion and no one has made their mind up. When a new scientific discovery is made, you embrace it rather than see it as threat to your beliefs. And it took me years of going to chapel before I realised that I just wasn't going to be given any answers. I used to sit there thinking, in a minute they'll tell you about the afterlife and how to get there. <laughs> you also introduced me to summer school and it's now part of my yearly calendar of events. And lastly, one of the best things you said to me when I was upset was, you're not overreacting, you're reacting. And this helped me to not judge my feelings in a situation, especially if they were very strong. And through, through being a Unitarian, I met Saint, my partner, and I never thought I would meet someone who I would fall in love with and have so many shared values. When we actually did the thing with the cards, we actually had a similar pile at the end. Um, you've given so me so much confidence in myself, actually by laughing at my ideas. <laughs> so <laughs> rather than saying, you're not actually going to do that, are you? Or you know you're saying all this stuff out loud. The first time that I was climbing up a tree adding pom-poms, you shouted, wait, stop. And I thought you were going to tell me it was dangerous, but you just wanted to get your camera. <laughs> Nancy, two years ago, you said to me, go away and write. Write like, like your life depends on it, because your life depends on it. And I went away and wrote comedy for BBC Radio, and this led on to stand-up, and I had my first paid gig this year. I know I'm going to miss people, but I want everyone who, who I've met, everyone who I've met on summer school has had an effect on me, and I hope vice versa. Even the briefest conversation or gesture can have an influence. I just want to speak briefly about holding values too, too strongly. It's important to hold them lightly. If you imagine your value is like a little bird, and if you had a little bird and it was really important to you, you would probably hold it like this, not like this. <laughs> so it's important to hold things lightly. You might just hold it like that. The other way is to imagine holding a rose. So imagine if you hold a rose and it was really beautiful. And if you hold it too tightly, it would start to prick you. I had this problem when I became 
um, a real ardent environmentalist. And I just got into basically a thing where I wouldn't buy anything. And I decided I wouldn't buy anything for a whole month. And then during that month, I mean, it included, I should say, not going out for meals. And during that month, someone actually asked me out. And I said, oh, I can't go out with you until after Easter. Because <laughs> 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 I was doing it for Lent. Um, and I think she just thought, look, if you don't want to go out with me, just say, don't make up some whole story. It's <laughs> clearly not true. Um, so holding values is important. Sometimes we can feel like we have a conflict with values. What if I value work, but also I value family? But it's more about how we divide up our time. We can value both. We can hold more than one value. But that's where holding it not too tightly comes into play. If you have a partner who is not into the same thing as you, maybe they do not go to church or are not into the same TV programmes, then we make a decision about how to stay connected despite these differences. If one of you is into running but the other isn't, um, but wants to stay fit, then maybe you would find something physical you could both do. Steady. <laughs> I knew you were going to laugh at that. I thought, shall I keep that in or not? <laughs> so bad. Right. In order to spend a life worth living, we need to say no to things that drain us. We might need to stop doing something so that we have time to focus on other things. It can be hard to stop doing something that we've done for a long time. And I'm sure there are many of you who are members of committees <laughs> or have roles in the church you've done for a long time. As in all organisations, people can get stuck in a role for many years. Perhaps no one seems to want to take it on or it's very specialist and people do not feel confident to take over. But it's important to keep moving roles round or we can end up feeling resentful. Sometimes we should never have taken on that role in the first place. I sometimes think it happens because you might have had a drink when you open your email. <laughs> you just go, that sounds easy. Um, or you may have taken on a role and then lots of people dropped off the rotor. And this can happen in families and work too. I was running a festival for a long time and then a lot of people dropped out. And I didn't want to organise it anymore. But I knew that if I didn't do it, then um, the festival would not continue. And it did stop, but then some more people took it on. It's all too easy to find ourselves agreeing something for a quiet life, or because we want to be helpful or later regret it. In the seminal work, getting in touch with your inner bitch, <laughs> Elizabeth Hilt tells us about how to say no. It's crucial, hang on, just so I've lost my thing. It's okay to say no. It's also okay to say no after we've said yes. You know that thing I said I would do? Well, I've had a think about it, and I'm not going to have time. Of course, you don't have to give an explanation. You can just say no, but that's quite advanced stuff. <laughs> so saying no is about being assertive, and sometimes you need the help of others to make this change. I was in a therapy group and I set myself the goal of saying to someone that I did not want to create a piece of art for her. She'd asked me to do a project and I found it a bit uninspiring. I was a bit torn, but the problem was I told the assertiveness group that I was going to turn the project down. And I was actually running the assertiveness group. <laughs> so I felt I had to give a good example. In the book, she gets us to start with something easy. So it can be good just to try saying no as a game with a friend. 
get them to ask you something completely out of order like um, can we swap rooms mine doesn't have a very good view or are you going home via Scotland can you give me a lift <laughs> can I swap engagement groups with you okay we're now going to sing from the green book um, which is our final song and I've chosen this for two reasons one because it depicts someone travelling forwards in their ambition, despite various barriers. And two, it has the word hobgoblin, so what's not to like? 150. There are some uh, spare ones in big print, if anybody wants one. a new behaviour, a new way of being a friend, a new way of being you. Something that will make your heart sing and your soul soar. The most important thing is to continue your life without accumulating new regrets. We all have things we wish we had done or paths we wish we had taken. But let us leave this place 
and do something today that is the start of daring greatly. Remember the C in ACT stands for commitment. The line in the serenity prayer is, give me the courage to change the things I can. And we need courage to change, to start something new, to do something different. We may need some help along the way. This encouragement, helping us have courage, may come from a friend, a family member, maybe there's someone in this room, maybe a therapist, or from your own faith. If you have a belief in a higher power, then ask that higher power for help in your new path. Your parrot may tell you it's not okay to ask for help, but it is okay to ask for help. You may get turned down, but you may be surprised at who or what is out there waiting for your request. You don't have to make changes alone. And remember, no one has told the bees that they can't fly, so they fly anyway. <laughs> <laughs>